As a brief introduction to the sermon, I will just tell you that the sermon I'm going to preach is the one I plan to preach, and I will not change my mind a few verses in. Sermon text this morning is Ephesians chapter 5. I couldn't waste the opportunity. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. These are the words of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with, washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be a holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his, <clears throat> for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So a quick prayer together. Our Father, we're thankful now for your word, and we desire to sit under its authority. We desire for your spirit to implant it on our hearts and our minds and make it come alive in our lives, make it real, something that we cherish and love and follow through on. And so help us with that as a church as we continually become a more obedient church day by day, according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. For the month of December, I wanted to um, further set aside Revelation, not that the dragons and the stars weren't a cool thing, that's all very good and well. Revelation has been going along pretty well. Uh, But every once in a while, when you do a long book like that, it's good to sort of break it up and and throw a few different things in the middle of it. I kind of felt like most of the Revelation sermons were nearly the same week after week, and I can't really control any of that. That's what the Bible gives you. That's what you preach. So I think this will be, uh, you know, not a break that we all wanted, but a break that would be good from Revelation, and we'll get back into Revelation in the new year. So for the month of December, then, we're going to open the Bible and see what God has to say about the Christian household. That's, that's our journey in the month of December. And really, December is a great month for these types of sermons because most of us celebrate this season with family members. And we're very intentional about it. You know, it's not like you celebrate with your family by mistake. You know, you plan to be with your family. You plan to be with your friends. You plan to be with your extended family. And so it's a good reminder. Um, it's a good time to, to be reminded what God's word says about who we are as individuals, individuals within a family, and then families within the church. Also, God has blessed this church with many children, and these children will not remain children forever. They will grow, they will mature, and therefore, parents who are a part of this church will need to be equipped to raise these children in the Lord. So I want us to realize how important it is for all the families of the church, whether you are a family of one or a family of seven, to be like-minded when it comes to the Christian household, to marriage, to children, and to Christian fellowship. And so these sermons will look something like today, um, we're going to tackle the first part of this, this uh, chapter with wives, then next week husbands, and then children, and then discipline, and building culture, and all of those things. We're even going to do a week on how as adult children, how do we as adult Christian children honor our parents which is a much-needed sermon in the life of our church. And so that's what we're going to be doing in, de- in December. And it's good for us to be like-minded in these things because it is a blessing to be a part of a church who is mostly aligned on most things. We want to believe the same things about the Bible. They will look different applied in our homes. They will exercise themselves differently in my home than in yours. But we want to be like-minded on how we view one another. I said a few weeks ago, I am very thankful to be part of a church that if Luke were on top of the church and ready to jump off, somebody would step in and tell him to get down in all the right ways, okay? I'm thankful. You can't get up to the roof, so don't try. 
Nobody else help him try, okay? I know what you guys are scheming right now. I don't know what games you play downstairs, but that's probably going to be the next one, you know, get Luke on the roof. So, so, but I'm thankful to be part of a church, and in order to keep that momentum going, in order to build unity and fellowship among each other, we really need to look at the Word of God and then be aligned on what it's telling us about who we are as families. Now, the, the big idea, though, is that Christian homes ought to always be reforming. You are never at your best in the Christian home. There's always something to refine, something to sharpen. And these past several years in the broader church context have revealed that the Christian home needs much reforming. Our world is divided. Families are divided. Unbelieving families are divided. Even Christian families are divided. We have reached a point when generations within the family no longer aim to be united together. And the prominent teaching in the church has been, well, this is one of the failures of the church, has been for each generation to live for themselves, not caring about the next generation or even the previous generation. We are a very individualistic people in our culture, in our society, in the day in which God created us, right? We live at a certain time, we were born to a certain place, and that place has societal rules, that place has a culture, and so we are inundated without usually realizing it, that we live in a very individualistic world. So each generation is a silo, and we don't want them connected. We don't think they are connected. We're just living for ourselves, never seeing what happened in the past or honoring that, and certainly not looking forward to the promises of the future. Now, I don't think most parents do this on purpose. I think most parents care that their children mature get an education, a job, a career, or whatever it may be, even get married and have a few children. But what we have noticed in the church is that that's generally where the concern ends. Many parents have not been equipped or even told that their number one goal ought to be wishing for their children to follow the Lord. Now again, they might say that with their lips, But what we have seen over a few decades, maybe more than that, is that in some church circles or some, you know, the theology of some denominations, let's say, what you proclaim with your lips is never followed through with your actions. Christian parents want their children to walk with the Lord, but oftentimes, without realizing it, I'm qualifying a lot because I don't want to, you know, I'm not... I'm not condemning people of sin for doing the opposite. I I don't think we do this intentionally. Christian parents want their children to walk with the Lord, but they end up raising their kids as spiritual deists. Here's what I mean. A deist is someone who believes that there is a God or a deity above them, but that they actually can't know who that God or deity is. So they recognize someone or something is above them, but that someone or something could never actually be discovered. All right, so they're humble enough to realize there's something more important than me in the world, but they just, they'll, they'll say, but nobody can ever know who it is. And if you say you know who the God is, then you really are just failing everyone around you. And without realizing it, this is where many Christians, um, this is how many Christians approach raising their children. We have been swimming in this modern evangelical culture for so long that many children, again, want, many parents want to see their children believe that there is a God above them, and they want their children to believe in the triune God of Scripture, but when it comes to their actions, they are preaching a completely different message. With the lips, they proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that he is God's one and only Son who can atone for the sins of his people. And with their actions, they actually proclaim that they are God. And no one, including Jesus, his word, or his church, has the authority to tell them what to do or how to do it. Every parent is susceptible to this temptation, to act as God, and that they are accountable to no one. Now, if you recognize what I said there, you'll recognize that this is the classic case of hypocrisy, saying one thing, right, and acting in another. One of the most damaging things a Christian parent can do within the home is to proclaim the gospel with their lips and then act in such a way that makes the gospel a damnable lie, a lie used to control their children or their husbands or their wives and everybody else around them. And this classic case of hypocrisy looks like rules for thee, but not for me. God's law, you must follow it, but I can do whatever I want. A person who has fallen into hypocrisy will hold everyone around them accountable to a certain standard, but will never hold themselves to that very same standard. And what we have realized, and what I want you to realize, 
is that what the Christian does in his or her own home will reveal what they believe about the God, about God, his church, and his word. So for example, if someone has a low view of husbands, they have a low view of Jesus Christ, who is the head. If someone has a low view of wives, they have a low view of the church, his body. If someone has a low view of children, they have a low view of the promises of God and the future of his church. And if this hypocrisy is not repented of, the home, that home is revealing who they truly worship. In a home where that reigns supreme, that idea of how you profess Christ but then act in the opposite way, in that home, what happens is those parents effectively push children away from the truth of the gospel. Because children want nothing to do with what their parents told them because they pointed out the hypocrite because they recognize the hypocrisy at a very early age. Now, whether you are a household of one or two or seven, how you act within the home will reveal what you truly believe. So these sermons are more than just a how-to guide on how to survive the little years with your kids or how to get them to sit quietly. Those are, those are good sermons to, to have too. But they're, they're much more than that. These sermons are far more than how to get your husband to do that certain thing or how to get your wife to stop doing that certain thing. These sermons are far more than that. These sermons teach us what God demands of his people. It's important for every church to consider these things, especially ours with all these children and all these families. When I tell people who ask about our church that I'm about the, I think I am, about the fourth or fifth oldest guy in the church, they just look at me like I am absolutely nuts, like I'm lying. But I don't think I am. This church has many young people in it. We have a few senior saints that keep us on the straight and narrow so we don't do anything dumb. And then we have a bunch of people who have lived half of as long as them who are going to continue to grow and mature and then more families are going to come behind us. This church ought to be attracting lots of young families who desire to build something worth standing on and who want to see the faithfulness of God go to the thousand generations. That's what this church is. That's what this church will continue to be. And let me encourage you about what we're doing here. Your family really, really matters. Your household really, really matters. It's not, your life just isn't reduced to what you do here when you show up. It matters also when you leave here, what's going on within your home. Because at this point in history, I would say that there are two things that will attract the unbeliever to the gospel, that will make them look at it for more than five seconds and consider if it's good and true and beautiful. It is the worship of God on Sundays and the Christian home Monday through Saturday. Those are the two things that are salt and light to the world. Those are the two areas that non-Christians look into and think, what are they doing and why are they doing that? And why am I strangely attracted to it? It's weird, but there's something really good about it that I want in my life. The worship of God on Sundays and the Christian home. Both, both very powerful tools in evangelism. The fruit of the gospel that has grown within the Christian home is the fruit that will attract the lost and dying world. The joyful fellowship that is fostered at your dinner tables will be what attracts unbelieving neighbors to the beauty of Jesus Christ. The way a husband loves his wife, the way he honors her and sacrifices for her and protects her is a light to the world. The way a wife adores her husband the way she obeys him and follows him and is thankful for him. This is the arrow that will pierce the heart of those who hate God and bring them to repentance. These are beautiful things that God has given the world. And the church needs to be displaying these things to the world. Now, that serves as an introduction, and let's move to this section of, uh, of Ephesians. We're only going to get through a few verses, and then next week I will follow up with the other half. I want you to see this letter, the letter sent to the church in Ephesus, um, I want you to think of it as like a wartime manual. There's a lot of military language in this book. In fact, it ends with putting down the whole armor of God. So you can see what Paul is doing here. This letter is a game plan for the church as they engage the lost world as God's people. That's what Paul does. Now the first three chapters of this book are full of truthful statements about Jesus Christ. They're just truthful thing after truthful thing. There's no commands in the first three chapters. Paul is just laying the pavement, right? He's, he's laying down the foundation of so that he can give you commands at the end of the book. 
He's telling you who Jesus is, what he has done, how he has affected the world, and then he's going to follow up with commands. So the first three chapters are truthful things about God. The last three chapters are now, if you believe those things, here's how they look. Now go and do these things, which is why the chapters 4, 5, and 6 are just full of commands, things to do. Paul starts, now I'm going to paraphrase a little bit of the book here. He says, everyone everywhere is a sinner in needs of God's grace. That's how he opens the book. And then he says, the sinner can do nothing to earn God's grace, nor is there anything within the sinner that allows him to choose God's grace. No one works with God in order to be saved. No one makes a decision to follow Jesus unless the Spirit has regenerated them first. Just as Lazarus was in the tomb when Jesus showed up, Lazarus didn't ask Jesus to let him out. Dead people don't do anything, and spiritually dead humans don't raise a spiritual good hand to say, please let me on your team. Now, if you've said yes to Jesus Christ, you've only said that because God allowed it. God is completely sovereign over salvation. Dead people don't choose righteousness. That's what Paul says. Now, the moment God saves a person, Paul says they are saved for good works. They are saved for good works. Then these good works are laid out for us in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So don't over-spiritualize the good works that we're saved for. You might say, okay, what are these good works that God wants me to do? Well, there's lots of things you can do that are good. Lots of things. And all of you are going to do lots of good things. But Paul gives you very specific good works to go and apply as soon as he gets down with chapter 3. And they are in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So today, in terms of the Christian home, we're going to focus on husbands and wives. Specifically wives, because that's where Paul starts in verse 22. And I want to, um, I want to do another sub-introduction about these verses. Every husband and every wife is establishing a culture, whether you think you are or not. You might say, well, I don't, I don't know what culture is, and I don't know what I'm establishing. Well, you, you've already been doing it. You've already been doing it. Your home smells a certain way. You talk a certain way. You act a certain way. That's culture. You're building a culture. Every marriage builds a culture where whether they know it or not, something is going to be produced, right? So something is going to come out of this culture that you build. The culture between a husband and a wife is what will power all other things in the home. Now also, considering these commands in chapters 4, 5, and 6, God commands to our weaknesses. If the Bible tells you to do something, it's because you don't want to do it. God wouldn't have to tell you if you just did it, right? So when God gives you a command, you ought to think, oh, I'm probably really bad at this, and I should consider what God says. That's what God's commands are. And God's commands are not burdensome. The Bible says they're actually very good for us. So Bible, the Bible commands to our weaknesses, which we get a lot of commands in these chapters. Now here's the main idea about marriage from the Bible. And I'll keep this brief, and then we will expound, uh, we will, uh, we'll expound a bit more on verses 22, 23, 24, and then down to 33. Okay? So I'll try to keep this brief. Husbands, here, here's the idea about marriage. Husbands are to grow up, or young men are to grow up and find a wife and become husbands, okay? Don't believe the lie that you should be single the rest of your life because that's close to godliness. That's, that's just a complete lie. Now, singleness is a gift, but it's not the gift the church has been preaching to you for the last 20 years. There is people who are single with a gift. That's a different sermon. That's generally not 90% of the young men who think they ought to be single, right? Because if you look at their computer web browsers, they don't have the gift of singleness. Make sense? All right? So there is a gift. There are men who have that gift. There are women who have that gift. But the majority of people are going to find somebody to marry, and they're going to marry them. I think the last statistic was like 96% of the world gets married, no matter what culture you're in. People are going to join together in marriage. So husbands are to take a wife. So that means from a very young age, boys should be taught that they need to find a biblical woman to marry. God has created men to take responsibility for a wife and kids. He has been created to build a home, to be a head, to lead, to take the glad assumption of responsibility. This is not an easy task, of course, because he will be attacked from every angle. His own flesh, the world, and the devil are always coming for the husband to try to throw him off his game. But God created him as the masculine part, and he knows his role. The masculine leads, the feminine responds. You cannot explain this away in the world. The masculine initiates, the feminine reacts to that initiation. That's how all of the world responds. Now, um, that's how all the world behaves. 
Now, notice the word glad there. A husband is to be glad as he builds his home. He is to lead with joy. He should not be leading a family while also complaining that he has to lead a family. Don't let God give you a family and then complain the whole time that you got one, okay? That doesn't work together. So if you have a family, men, be joyful and be happy that you have one. It's in these ways that the husbands model Jesus Christ, who took full responsibility for his bride. Jesus Christ Christ was crucified for the sins of the church. He came and took your place. He is and was crucified. He, is, he was crucified for the sins of his bride, the church. And in the same way, this is the husband's call. So when it comes to sin in the home, a husband is not guilty of his wife's or his children's sin, but he is absolutely responsible before God for it. He's responsible for it. Men have been given broad shoulders to carry a lot of weight. They are responsible before God for the state of their home. And we learn this very early on in the Bible, in the creation of the world, in Adam and Eve. After Eve ate the fruit, she gave some to her husband, and he also ate. This is Genesis 3, chapter 9. After they ran and hid in the garden, God came to look for them. And what did God say? He called out to Adam to give an account for what had happened with his family. What did Adam do? He blamed his wife. Okay, so don't do what Adam did, okay? Don't do what the first Adam did, did what the sec- do what the second Adam does, okay? The second Adam, Jesus Christ, takes responsibility. So wives, likewise, are created to submit to her own husband, her own husband, notice that, and respect him in the same way that the church submits to Jesus Christ. This means she ought to obey him, follow him, do all the things that God has uniquely created her to do while submitting and obeying and showing respect. 1 Corinthians 11 says the woman is the glory of man. So she comes alongside her husband, she submits to his direction, and she makes everything around him that much more glorious. Women are beautiful for the right reasons, because they make everything in the world more beautiful. Left, left to guys, the world doesn't look all that great. <laughs> okay? Left, women are glorious, they help make the world glorious. Now, this means that a wife must be willing and able to rely on her husband to create the distinctives of the culture within the family. She is not out front leading. She is not going in her own direction. God has given every wife a husband to lead her. And although wives will be involved in a dozen different things at once, which they are all very good at doing, all of those things ought to and should align with the vision and the culture of the family. The woman is the glory of man, his covering. A prudent wife is from the Lord. A Christian wife who is discerning and strong and confident and gentle and gracious and kind is a glorious thing for a husband. If her husband is leading in one direction, she ought to be following, assuming that God agrees with her husband's direction. So if a husband says, here's who the Gilfillan family is, here's what we're going to be about, and God agrees with me because it's right there in Scripture, a wife says, let's go then I'll make it better than you ever imagined. That's the role of the Christian wife. A wife is not created to marry a man and then live a separate life within that marriage. A A wife is not created to marry a man and then live a separate life within the marriage. Contrary to modern opinion, a wife does not have a secret closet of dreams hidden within her heart that must be fulfilled. And then with every passing year that they're not, loathe the fact that God gave her a husband and children. All right, this is not a Disney movie. Every Disney movie is the young girl who's held down by men who won't let her be some magical unicorn or something. That's every Disney movie. And that teaches young girls to say, well, I know I'm good to get married, but as I'm married, I'm going to keep this secret dream in my heart, this flame burning, so I can break out from under the yoke of his oppression and go truly be alive. We've been eating that poison fruit for a very, very long time. Now, don't stop watching some of those Disney films, but watch that, pause it, and teach them what's going on. That's the better way to do it. A wife's dream ought to be her husband's dream. They dream together. They build together. And again, 99% of every movie you have watched and most of the music you have listened to teaches the opposite. It teaches the opposite. The world will always portray the husband as the one who is holding the wife back from truly living out her dreams, from truly becoming who God has created her to be. 
And if a wife holds on to this secret life that she desires to live, she will absolutely destroy a marriage. She will destroy it. Now, you might feel like, man, John, you were pretty, pretty heavy on the wives that first week. But the husbands are coming next week, okay? So all you guys can smile and just look forward to next week. Now, look at verse 22. God says to the wives, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Again, God gives us commands because we're sinners saved by grace who need to be transformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And God's commands are good for us. They are not burdensome. Your husband is not holding you back from living your secret life of fairy tales, and neither is God, Okay. God the Father is not an oppressive, patriarchal figure who hates women. He created a bunch of them, okay? God loves women. So his commands are not burdensome. They are good for us. And wives here are commanded to submit their own husbands. It's very important. There are no wives here who will submit to me, even as a pastor. Your household submits to the leaders of the church. That's what Hebrews tells you, to submit and obey your leaders. But no wife individually will ever be expected to submit to me or any other officer of this church ever. I'm not your husband. You have one, okay? So that, that's not my role. That's very important, to submit to your own husbands. A wife is commanded to submit to her own husband as to the Lord, which is to say a wife should view submission to her husband in the same way she views her submission to her Lord. You cannot separate the two. And this is because the husband is the head of the family in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. The church submits to Jesus Christ. The wife submits to her own husband. And you will often see these things fit together. If a church is faithful to submit in all things to Jesus Christ, or at least attempt to, day after day, year after year as they grow, you will notice within that church women, wives, who desire to submit in all things to their husbands. That's why culture of a church is so very important. If your pastor never opens the Bible and gives you some really good story, that church will be filled with husbands and wives who have no idea what they're doing. So as the church submits to Christ, wives submit to their husbands. This command is first rooted in the created order. Eve was created for the man, Adam. And this is related in the relationship between Jesus and his church. So every marriage, every marriage union is created and commanded to act in this way. This is what God created husbands and wives for. But now, knowing that then, I want to add a few qualifiers because sometimes these are very good things to add. First, some objections might be, what about a wife with a husband that is not a Christian? What do I do? Well, first Peter gives us the instruction. He says, likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, let's assume that's an unbelieving husband, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This is a good and faithful promise to any wife in this position. The conduct of a Christian wife, a wife who is subject to her husband, and a wife who recognizes that God created her for this purpose is a powerful witness to win a husband who does not obey the word. This is the way that God is going to bless that family. Because you could say the unbelieving husband is, is a blessing in lots of many ways. He is still a man who has lots of responsibilities and lots of unbelieving husbands are great men. That's not the issue. But spiritually then, the wife is the biggest blessing in that home. The second qualifier is, could be any specific situation where the husband is not acting like a Christian but professes to be one. So he's asking his wife to submit to sinful things. Now, the clear and short answer is no Christian wife ought to ever submit to her Christian husband who is asking her to sin. Ever. Right? Wives, Christian wives need to obey God first. And even in that situation, though, there are at least 25 questions that I would ask if that situation came to me. Because if you are a Christian wife who is being asked to submit to sinful things in the home, now you have to say, what do I do? I'm supposed to submit in all things, but God doesn't want us to do that. Okay, what do I do? Well, how, how do I disobey my husband in a godly way? It's even weird to put those two things together, but that is the way you can do it. How do I disobey God and still respect my husband? 
Those are situations that some of you will come upon and you need to be able to think about those before they come. If, the, if a wife finds herself in a position where she is consistently not submitting to her husband, the first two qualifiers could be at play. They could. Okay? They could be at play. So from the outside, it doesn't look like that wife is very submissive. Well, yeah, but my unbelieving husband wants me to not go to church. I'm, I'm going to go to church. Or my believing husband is asking me to do some very unwise, foolish, sinful things. Okay? You'd have to say, I'm a Christian wife. I, I, you don't want, I'm not going to do that. You don't want me to do that. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And you can do that in a respectful way. So those are a few qualifiers. And oftentimes when these things come up from a sermon, we usually make those qualifiers like the majority of culture. But they're not. So if you are a Christian wife who struggles with submission, those two points might be at play, and you now have a totally different set of categories to think through as a Christian woman. You just have a different situation, okay? That's the lot that God gave you. You want to be faithful to him, and through your friendships, through your church, through your elders, your pastors, they are there to help you navigate through those decisions. However, I suspect that most wives who struggle to submit to a well-meaning, godly husband just struggle to submit because they struggle to obey God. They just don't want to. So if a couple came and the wife isn't submitting to her husband and he's not asking to do anything crazy, he's not doing anything wrong, generally the wife needs to say, well, man, if I'm supposed to submit to my husband as to the Lord, am I even submitting to the Lord? Do I even love God? Do I obey his word? Usually that's where the tension relies. So I suspect that most women who do struggle with submitting actually find themselves in this category. They're not just sinning against their husband. First and foremost, there's probably a sin and offense before God that they need to deal with first. Now, Christian wife, if this is you, you need to first repent of the sin of not submitting to your well-meaning, godly husband. Okay, I don't know, I don't know how many more qualifiers I can fit in there, but you know what I'm saying. A well-meaning, godly husband who is not asking you to do anything sinful, you just don't agree with him. All right, you need to repent of that sin, and then you need to repent to your husband, and you need to work out your obedience in small ways before God and to your husband. For example, if you have a Christian husband who says, that's the way we're going, that's the direction of our life, God gives us that direction as an option. It's a good direction, we can go that option, based on how our family is built, based on who we are, based on our children, based on where we came from, based on all sorts of factors, that's the way we're going to live, that's the direction. If a wife says, no, that's a sin. If a wife makes it hard for the husband to lead in that direction, that is a sin. Why is it a sin? Because Paul says, submit in all things to their husbands. You know, I'll talk to Rome about this because he's the next one to get married, but and I'm doing the wedding, right? I'm, I haven't, I'm going to spring this on them in front of everybody. But, <laughs> but, you know, modern weddings, we actually should have the language of obedience in there. I think it's really important. It would be countercultural, and half the wedding would freak out if they were not Christians. But for a wife to say, I will love you, cherish you, whatever those good vows are, and I will obey you. Because we need to shift the window of language back to Christian language. Submission is obedience. Did I give qualifiers when you disobey? Yes. Those are totally other different sermons. I am talking about a straightforward, well-meaning Christian husband who has a wife who is not submitting. Generally, that wife has an issue obeying the Lord first, and now it's flowing down into her marriage. Just think about it. You don't have to, you don't have to do it. If you go to his wedding and he doesn't do it, he's not a sinner. Okay, give him some grace. Now, a marriage cannot thrive if the wife is in a constant state of this unrepentant sin. It may last for a while, and everything may be fine in your defiance to submit. Everything might look good on the surface, but this will absolutely disintegrate the relationship between man and wife. Why? Because this is how God has created the world. You can't explain it away. You can't get away from it. You reap what you sow. Now, the final thing for wives, verse 33. Look all the way down to verse 33. This is how Paul ends the husband and wife command. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. This is the bookend of how to live out good works now that you are saved in between husbands and wives. Now, this is where the love and respect theme comes into play within marriage. 
Paul says husbands are to love and wives are to respect. Now, modern culture has reversed this to the point where most young girls are told they need to be respected first and most young men are told they need to find a girl who truly loves them. That's usually in the movies, right? And this creates all sorts of problems. Now, you got to think of your own marriage because I'm going to, you need to apply this first to the adult husbands and wives in here, but then think about your children growing up. This is totally backwards. This is why young women grow up to choose the wrong man because they will connect themselves to a man they love but who she does not respect. That's an issue. So if you have a daughter here, you say, okay, you're getting older now, you're going to start looking at boys and they're going to all of a sudden be handsome. They weren't icky and sticky. Now you kind of like looking at them, right? And you kind of like hanging out with them. Which ones do you hang out with? You hang out with the ones who you can respect. Now, how do you teach that to a teenage daughter of what respect is and a teenage boy? That that takes some nuances and some specific things for each family. You can do those things. But don't teach young girls to be oogly-googly over a guy who's cute if he's disrespectful. That's not going to get them anywhere. Because what happens is a girl says, but I really, really love him. And when she says that and won't leave the deadbeat who's dragging her down, she'll say, I really, really love him. But if you said, do you respect him? She would say, no, because I'm always bailing him out of problems. He can't even get himself out of trouble. You don't want that kind of guy for your husband. This is why the love and respect language is so very important. Now, likewise, young men have become so effeminate, they want a girl who truly knows them and who truly loves them. And it's weird and it's icky. So don't do that. Yes, guys will be vulnerable and they need to speak and talk to their wives, but no man wants to do that for at least more than 32 minutes. Now, if you do, you're better than me, praise God. Okay, I get it. But men need to find a girl who respects them. They need to find a girl who they love, not respect. Men don't need to be loved, they need to be respected. When men desire love first from a young girl, love will come because Titus tells women, to love their husbands. That's not a thing that's not there, but respect has to be first because that is the fuel that drives him. If she keeps giving him love, it's going to effeminatize him, and eventually he will grow into the husband that you marry that you absolutely do not respect. So this has consequences. Now, by God's grace, if you entered a marriage that way, it can be transformed because that was kind of our story. I was the effeminate, icky guy, right? And Sherry was the cop's daughter who demanded that I respect her. Now, I do respect her. That's, that's not a thing. Okay. But by God's grace, like, so like, for example, I didn't, this is in my notes, but we were not handed the best of things to figure out how to do this. And by God's grace, we figured out in the word of God and people that came around us that taught us the right way to do it. Our, our, our marriage is amazing. Okay. Our marriage is amazing. Now, this is where the love and respect theme comes in. We don't want it to be backwards. Okay. Here we go. Most Christians are aware of these verses. There are many books written about this topic. There are many conferences about these topics. In fact, you can book yourself on a complete entire weekend getaway all revolving around love and respect. They have them. And I'm sure some of them are good. I've never been to one. I'm sure some of them are great. But I think a lot, much of the church does not apply love and respect in a way that is easy and understandable where you can go home and do it this afternoon. Like you should be able to take the Bible and say, okay, how do I apply this this afternoon? I think there are Far better teachers, um, there are a few good teachers among of all the Bible teachers right now that help us with this topic. Two men are C.R. Wiley and Douglas Wilson. Now, C.R. Wiley's pretty safe. If you Google Douglas Wilson and listen to what Vice HBO says about him, you're probably going to leave the church. So don't do that, okay? It's interesting how Christians read pagan literature and think that they got, you know, they got it right. So those two men, though, have written extensively about the Christian family, men who have adult children and growing grandchildren who are still in the faith. These men can be trusted right? We will know them by their fruits. So you want to follow people who have this trustworthy path. doesn't mean you have to do it. It just means they are a source you can consider. And this is how they help us understand the love and respect verse in 33. They say that the husband and the wife run on two different types of fuel. And if you've been part of our marriage classes, you're going to hear the exact same thing, but we all need to hear it at least twice a year, okay? Husbands and wife run on different types of fuel. The husband runs on respect, And they categorize that as diesel. It's dirty, it's unrefined, it's very simple. Smokes a lot, okay? Not a lot of cigars, just you know what I mean, the illustration. Smokes a lot. Wives run on love, which is premium Formula One gasoline. It's expensive, it's costly, it's very, very clean, okay? It's fragile. Diesel is easy, you throw in anything, it gets up and going. 
Formula One is a little bit different fuel. It takes a little while to refine. These are the two types of fuels that both husbands and wives need in order to even get through the day. Much less get through the week and then get through the year. So wives, you are called to respect your husbands, and this respect is best represented by this type of fuel. It's not refined, it's not clean, it's very simple, and so is your husband. So is your husband. He is far simpler than you actually think. And husbands, if you're not, you're doing it wrong. Make it very simple, okay? Be a husband who makes things very simple, all right? Now, your husband, husband will know that you respect him when he hears you respect him. This is very important. When he hears you respect him. Now, Josh shared a quote with me earlier this week, and we laughed, had a good chuckle about it, but it is a pervasive quote that many Christians use, and it's absolutely damaging, right? Preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Like, that's like the mantra of the last 30 years. What what are they saying? Well, you preach the gospel with your actions. Amen. And the very same people don't ever preach the gospel or say anything to their husband about respect. The same women who will believe that won't actually exercise it, okay? So you can't just show your husband you respect him because he doesn't get it. It's not a joke, okay? I'm not taking a jab at men that they're dumb. Men are not dumb, but they're easy, they're simple, and they're unrefined, okay? He doesn't always see it. Respect isn't best communicated through actions. Respect is best communicated through your words. So the language of respect, the fuel that he needs, is found and discovered through adoring and encouragement. Men are so simple, they want two things from their wives. Adoration and encouragement. They want a wife who will look him in the eyes and completely adore him above all other things. Doesn't matter. Nothing is cooler than your husband, right? Nothing is better than your husband. That's what they want to know. And they want to be encouraged to keep doing the things that they're good at. You exercise those two things in your house, your husband will run through a brick wall. He will do anything. If you withhold that, he will shrivel and disengage and die. And you'll be like, well, where's my husband at? He's always away from the family. He's kind of off doing his other thing. I have a husband now who has six other hobbies, and none of them involve the family. At that moment, your husband could be in sin. I'm not saying that isn't true. But I would actually take a spiritual inventory as a Christian wife and say, have I even vocalized that I adore him or that I respect him? Because a man who isn't respected is just going to shrivel up and die. He's not going to whine and tell you that he needs to be respected. He might every once in a while have to lead you in how to do it, but he's not going to whine. He's just going to give up. He's simple, he's dirty, and it's easy. He's a simple guy. So, the language of respect for wives to their husbands is adoration and encouragement. Wife, adore your husband. Adore your husband, and he will see that as respect. Build him up with your words. Make it known that you are into him and him alone. Look at him and see if he is the only man for you because he ought to be. So that's a given. And if you also encourage him with your words, he will know he is respected. So here are some words, some phrases that you ought to be using in your house as a Christian wife. You can steal these ones. You can change them if you want. But they probably sound like this. I trust you with our family. Thank you for leading well. You are really good at what you do. I'm glad I am your wife. Say those things, put them on repeat, and he will absolutely fly. Because he's simple. And that's all the fuel he needs. Ask any guy in the room. They all smirk at me when I say this because they all know it's true. They're like, yeah, my wife totally overthinks it. I just need her to look me in the eye and say, I love you and you alone, and you're really amazing at what you do. That's like a day and a half worth of fuel. Men are simple. They can go a long way on just that. Because they were created to take a wife who does that. That's how God has designed the marriage. And here's why this is so important. A man who knows he is respected by his wife, even though he will sin and even though he will fall short, even when he doesn't get it right all the time, a man who knows that he's respected by his wife will rise to the challenge of being a respectable man. Now, you wives already know this is true because every time a young boy jumps off the playground and says, see, 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 why do we clap for young boys? Good job. Don't clap too long. They'll get a big head, okay? Clap till they're like three, then stop clapping. Why do boys say, dad, mom, look, 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 look? Because they were wired to be encouraged and adored. And so wives, even with your young sons, that is a constant. That's the fuel they need. You're amazing at that, buddy. Do it again. Jump. 
Watch him. He'll be like, ah, right? He freaks out. And he just gets so happy because that's how we're wired. Now, this is the challenge here. This is the challenge for wives to do this. The failure of the Christian wife to respect her, um, the failure is that a Christian wife generally only wants to use those words of respect when they are earned, when he's respectable. Right, but what does Paul say? Paul doesn't say wives respect your husband if he's acting respectable. He doesn't give that qualifier. And so if a, wife's, if a wife withholds respect language from their husband, you are actually acting in the opposite of the gospel. Those are the actions that put on display you actually don't believe Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. Because Jesus Christ came and gave you what you absolutely did not deserve. He came from heaven to earth, died for your sin, you didn't deserve it, took all the payment, the full responsibility, and you're in the house thinking, well, I'll respect you if you just act respectable. Paul doesn't tell you that. Paul doesn't tell you that. And you might think, dude, that is not going to help me, okay? Christian wives are like, well, I've been doing it the opposite, and I'm in control now, so I ain't giving up. I, emotionally, I got that man right where I want him. That's a sin. That's not good. And so you want to respect your husband even if he's not acting respectable. And you can do that. Hey, you blew it there. We all see that. Husband, I love you. You should actually be prudent and straightforward with your husbands. I love you. You blew it. And you're doing a really good job at recovering. Good job. I appreciate you. Those are the things that keep the marriage alive. When you respect your husband, and even if he's not acting respectable, you are applying the gospel of Jesus Christ in your home. You, as the wife, are being the witness to what the true gospel is. Because Jesus gives us what we do not deserve. Now, if you struggle to do that, if you struggle to do that and you withhold those words of encouragement until he proves you that he's earned it, here is a warning for you from Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it would be measured to you. If you withhold respect until the moment it is earned, your husbands will withhold love until you have earned it. And nobody wants to live in that house. Nobody wants to live in that house. And you shouldn't expect anything else. A Christian wife who withholds encouragement and adoration should say, well, this is how I've been acting. He's not loving me. I have, you know, what do I expect? I'm doing the very same thing to him that I don't want him doing to me. So that's the warning. Now, some wives, you're just not good at encouraging. It's not your natural thing. You actually would like to show him more than speak to him. And that's just a personality thing. That's not a sin. You just want to work on the language portion, okay? It's not saying you can't do anything that doesn't show him respect. But when you talk to someone, you use your words. And so words are very powerful. So, uh, I'll begin to close here. Wives, if your husband is distant, a little moody, men, stop it. But if, you, if he does get a little moody, and you notice that something is off, but you don't know what in the world happened. You don't know why. You haven't sinned against him. There's nothing crazy going on in the home, but he's beginning to just disengage. That's when you say, have I filled his tank up with respect? That's, that's what should trigger that thought. You take a personal inventory and say, have I been building him up and filling up his tank in order to get him down the road? More times than not, the answer is you have not. Now, it doesn't mean you did it intentionally. It just means you forgot. It just means you got busy. It's just something you need to work on. Now, this is not an excuse for men because husbands ought to be joyful and obedient and lead well even when he's not respected because in the same way that a wife can be given an unbelieving husband, a husband can be given a wife who absolutely hates him and doesn't respect him, but he has to stay in the game and he's got to keep going. Both of those situations are absolutely hard. So if you know someone like that and they're your friends, they are the ones we need to encourage most. Now, wives, you might say, well, I don't disrespect my husband. I'm nice, I'm patient, I'm easy to be around. Right, so says you, but... But, says the audience of one, right? What's wrong with me? Everybody loves me, including me. But have you used the language of respect? Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you are obeying the Lord just because you know what Paul says. That is the next big church thing that we need to repent of. We love to say, well, I know it without ever doing anything about it. Knowing something in your head without applying it actually proves you don't know it. You have to apply it. 
It's one thing to know something intellectually. It's another thing to let it be exercised into your whole life. So here's where I close. Wives, one of the good works that you've been saved for is to submit in all things to your husband and respect him. That is a good work that God created you for. And it's that work that puts the gospel on display to the whole entire world. Right? The world says, unless you rise up, get out from under that man's yoke of oppression, become a CEO, you will never influence the world the way it should be influenced. Which is a complete lie. Because you are doing exactly what the church does in relation to Jesus Christ. You are submitting to your husband, modeling what the entire world will eventually look like when every tribe, tongue, and nation comes to submit themselves to Jesus Christ. You see how that works together? Wives who submit and respect are leading the world in how the church does that before Jesus Christ. It's far more powerful than you ever think. It's the opposite of what you've been told. Your submission and respect is bigger than you home, and bigger than your home, because God has predestined you, He has called you, He has justified you, He is sanctifying you, so that the nations would follow your example. Because just as you submit in all things to the head of your house, the world, the church, is one day going to submit in all things to Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, let's close in prayer and ask for God's help, and then we will enjoy the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for your word, for the challenge it is for wives to respect men and their husbands specifically. Father, we ask that you would help every single wife here or the the young girls who, who will be wives in the future to grow in their knowledge of the Lord, to apply these things well. We pray that husbands will become men who are respectable, making it easy on their wives to show respect. Father, help the wives who are in a situation where their husband is not respectable. Give her the strength and the endurance and the hope. Give her friends that encourage her, a community that supports her so that she can continue to obey you, even if she's put into a position where it's very, very hard. Father, we want our homes to thrive. We want our homes to thrive in the way you have commanded us. We want to experience the blessings that you have for us. So help us to become an obedient people who will live in light of your promises, who will obey your commands, and who by faith, We'll do all things unto you so that we can experience the world that you have for us. I pray for our homes here, for those who are married, for those who are even not yet married, who look forward to the day where they may become married. They would hear these words. They would love these words. They would obey this word. And that the Christian home would be good and true and beautiful once again. And then in that, Father, we ask that you would bring many people to faith in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.